1: All right. Talking about lower than projections, let's talk about downgrades to the U.S. economy. We have Carl Riccadonna. He is our chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us here in our 1130 studio. Carl, always a pleasure. Um, Downgrading the U.S. economy. Give us some details.
2: Yes. So uh, we uh, just this morning uh, published our uh, updated uh, mid-year projections, and uh, we're not changing our outlook for 2017 uh, we see the economy growing at about 2.4 uh, percent. However, we did mark down our 2018 uh, forecasts. Now, ordinarily, that would be more troubling, as it would have broader implications. Uh, you know, clearly, you would say while well, you're seeing a weaker economy, uh, but really, the the reason for our downgrade of 2018 uh, was uh, basically erasing. Trumponomics from the landscape. Uh, and so uh, we've now assessed that uh, given the prioritization of non-economic measures, let's say uh, healthcare care uh, repeal, uh, and certainly these have economic consequences, but not direct economic policy. So uh, the focus on health care, border security, travel bans, etc., cetera, uh, is squandering political capital and also valuable days on the legislative calendar, uh, which means that uh, we now are seeing uh, less likelihood of things like comprehensive tax reform at both the uh, household and uh, corporate levels, uh, massive infrastructure spending. Uh, those economic pillars uh, of uh, tr- or, or main pillars of Trumponomics, uh, I think, are at, in serious jeopardy. So I would love to see them come back on the table and we would mark our growth forecasts up accordingly, uh, but it just doesn't look like that's going to be the reality.
0: You know, Carl, I'm struck by the fact that you had priced in some of those uh, legislative advances earlier in the year, and I'm wondering, as an economist, how difficult is it to come up with some kind of projection when clearly uh, these proposals apparently would have had a very significant impact on uh, how much the country would grow?
2: Absolutely. So there was tremendous uncertainty as to whether or not they would be uh, issues. Uh, they were uh, clearly uh, major themes on the campaign trail. And it looked like uh, initially uh, there was going to be a lot of motivation to pursue uh, those agenda items. Uh, however, the administration pivoted and, uh, I, and certainly we knew that uh, health care and Border security were going to be priorities as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, there was a chance that uh, a businessman president would uh, pursue uh, the economic priorities uh, first. Uh, there's reasons for them to go after health care because if there are budget savings through health care reform, they could incorporate that into uh, their uh, adjustments to uh, budget measures and uh, tax policy. But, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they uh, the went, went the direction they did. And uh, now the discord uh, seems to be uh, increasing seeing it certainly among democrats but also among republicans uh, and so what well, we had to reassess the likelihood of those measures uh, being incorporated and and you revised the uh Outlook uh, accordingly, and uh, you know we are not alone in doing this. Uh, the Fed has uh, continued to grapple with uh, the degree to which they would incorporate uh, changes to fiscal policy into their forecasts. Some some Fed members did, some didn't, uh, but now they seem to at least, based on the minutes of the May FOMC meeting, uh, they are shifting uh, back towards uh, anticipating less of a change to fiscal policy.
1: Well, Carl, I just want to maybe just pick up on something that, that Lisa mentioned and maybe just go one step further, which is the details, the actual numerical details of many of these things that you described, other than the broad brush strokes. Have we seen any details that would allow an economist or an, uh, uh, any kind of analytical work done on what this would all mean for the
2: economy? Things were presented uh, with broad brushstrokes, uh, as you note. So uh, it becomes a uh, a best guess uh, type of scenario. Uh, we knew the uh, uh, objective for the infrastructure infrastructure package would be about $1 trillion spread over 10 years. So you can kind of uh, calculate how long it would take for that to get underway. Obviously, it doesn't happen uh, with the flip of a switch. Uh, so that is something you could, at least to some rudimentary level, uh, model for uh, GDP purposes. And then there were also some parameters laid out uh, in terms of what uh, tax policy would like uh, look uh, like and uh, what the implications would be. Just quickly, give you 20 seconds. PPI, producer
1: price uh, inflation, what did we get today?
2: Uh, PPI is uh, telling us that there's uh, still only moderate price pressures in the inflation uh, pipeline. And this is something policymakers are going to be considering uh, at the meeting as uh, core inflation, consumer inflation, uh, has disappointed in the last two months. And now it looks like that 2% target may be a little harder to achieve than they thought earlier this year.
1: All right. I want to thank you very much, Carl sure Riccadonna, of course, uh, our chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, a downgrade to uh, U.S. economic performance in 2018 because of, uh, well, the uh, disappearance of the Trump economic agenda from the uh, possibility of having that passed in Congress. Sears Canada suffered its worst stock decline ever after acknowledging significant doubt about its ability to keep operating, leading the troubled department store chain to consider a sale or restructuring. Also today, Sears is cutting 400 jobs at its Hoffman estate's headquarters here to tell us more about retail and also sears is mark cohen he is a director of retail studies adjunct professor of business at columbia university school of business and he is also the former chief executive of sears canada mark cohen thank you very much for being with us Um, i'm wondering if you could just give people a little of your background because if if you don't know what's going on in retail nobody does because you've been doing this quite a while
3: Okay, I've been in the retail business most of my adult life. I started at AS in the early 1970s. Uh, getting a little closer to date, I was the uh, chief marketing officer and president of Softlines for several years at Sears Roebuck in Chicago, and then the chairman and CEO of Sears Canada from uh, 2001 through mid 2004. Uh, the companies uh, have been in serial decline. In the case of Sears Roebuck, that decline started in 2000 uh, when uh, Alan Lacey became CEO. And after five years of flailing, uh, he turned the, the, the company more or less over to Eddie Lampert, uh, the well-known hedge fund operator who has been hollowing both companies out uh, ever since. And so the, the ongoing bad news, both in the United States and Canada, is no surprise. Uh, Retail businesses, frankly, no business can operate with consecutive losses of enormous consequence with cash flow that only um, comes from asset sales.
0: Well, you know, I I just want to get a sense. When you left uh, Sears, you were fired, right, in 2004. Uh, What was the departure over? Was it because you just didn't see a future anymore, or is it because uh, they just weren't going to take some of the steps that they needed to in order to make it a viable business?
3: Well, you know, this is obviously my view, but I thought the Sears Roebuck CEO was incompetent and he was reasonably convinced that I was trying to take away his job. Uh, I had no um, ability to do that, but certainly someone should have taken away his job. And so therein lies the conflict that occurred in the summer of 2004. He had spent $605 million in cash buying 51 Kmart's from Lampert's newly acquired Kmart, And uh, this was to support a strategy which um, um, was called Sears Grand, which was a catastrophe and which he was trying to get me to support in Canada, uh, more or less to help legitimize it. So I thought the acquisition of this real estate was um, uh, nefarious, if you will. And as it turned out, in a manner of speaking, Lampert turned around and used that $605 $605 million, along with the uh, inflated valuation of his own Kmart portfolio, and took possession of Sears Roebuck. So, you know, this is a, uh, this is a bad ending to a series of really bad events. Um, businesses can get into trouble for relatively brief periods of time and extract themselves But both of these businesses have done nothing on their own behalf to be able to do that.
1: Mark, can you describe whether this, in your view, is this been a strategy to build the wealth of Eddie Lampert or has it been a strategy to build the health and wealth of Sears? Uh,
3: I, I really can't comment about Lampert's underlying motivation. Uh, maybe for some period of time he did have the view that he could run these businesses in an unconventional way and be successful in his own right. I think early on he discovered that that wasn't viable and has been propping these businesses up for his own benefit and for the benefit of his um, investment cohorts uh, ever since. Um, but it
0: hasn't been a benefit. It's been a well, drain, hasn't it?
3: It, it, it remains to be seen when all is said and done what his net net investment proceeds will be for all of this effort and for for all, over all of this time. I really don't know whether he's going to quote unquote come out ahead or not, but it's clear that both businesses are are in terrible shape, continue to be uh, struggling with no possibility of remediation anytime in the future.
0: You know, I, I'm struck by the fact that people have been saying Sears is going to die for about a decade. Why isn't it just going to die? Do you think that there will be anything that will kind of force it to some kind of denouement, or well, are we going to see it strung along for another decade?
3: Yeah, well, it might very well uh, string along. Uh, the U.S. business might very well string along for some period of time. I don't know that Canada has that uh, capacity, uh, because the U.S. business still does have some substantial um, assets that can yet be sold off. I mean, uh, the U.S. does still possess a reasonably large portfolio of real, of real estate. Yeah. Uh, the best stores have long ago been um, uh, sold off. Right. The cash has long ago been dividended into Lampert's pockets or used to prop up the company. Um, uh, so we'll see. Where at it goes at from some here. point, you do run out of fuel and uh, that may be soon or it may be somewhere in the future, but it's clear that both of these businesses have completely lost their viability.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's good to get a good uh, inside look at what's going on there. Mark Cohen is Director of Retail Studies and an adjunct professor of business at Columbia University Business School, also former Sears Marketing Chief and uh, head of Sears Canada. We hear a lot from investors who are turning their attention more to Europe than the U.S., at least when it comes to equity markets. Uh, But CEOs clearly have their views set on the U.S. I want to bring in John V. Meyer. He's global chairman of KPMG International based in New York. uh, And KPMG just released its 2017 CEO Outlook report. And wow, John, a lot of optimism and a lot of focus on the U.S. Can you just sort of uh, start by spelling out what you think are the main takeaways from this survey?
4: Sure. Thanks for having me on, Lisa. And you know, I think we start with confidence levels. And, and one thing that's interesting about our survey, we intentionally try and focus on the next three years. So it's intended to be a longer term view on the part of the CEOs, since we think that mirrors their investment cycle, hiring cycle, and everything else. Um, confidence levels, I would say, are a little more subdued from the survey last year, but still relatively high. And frankly. The U.S. is the one market in the world where confidence levels are higher than what was reflected in our survey last year, uh, which is a very positive sign, you know, from a U.S. standpoint. But frankly, as you look around Asia, some real um, drops, frankly, in confidence levels of CEOs as they look out over the next three years in some places like Japan, Australia, other places in Asia Pacific. So a real mixed bag, depending upon uh,
1: where you're based Well, you mentioned mixed bag, and I I want to follow up with that having to do with globalization and the ability of companies to compete around the world. I wonder if you could speak to that topic, and do you believe that the current political uh, climate in the United States uh, will thwart uh, that ongoing trend?
4: Well, you know, it's interesting. We ask in our survey a fair number of questions that uh, get you down a geopolitical path, and uh, that is still viewed, I think— as uh, a key risk as CEOs look out into the marketplace. Uh, and some of the specific feedback we got about geopolitical risk were, uh, number one, a sentiment that over half the CEOs believed that the impact of geopolitical risks on their business are higher today than they ever remember. Uh, secondly, this um, a question about protectionism that we tried to get a sense of, given how much, you know, discussion there
1: is in the marketplace around. And discussion on things like Twitter, where you have elected officials using a public platform to name companies.
4: Yeah, there's a high percentage, over 30% of the CEOs uh, indicated that they believe protectionism will be increasing in the near term and over the next three years, uh, which is again concerning given the levels where it already is today. And that's having an impact on decisions CEOs um, say they're evaluating in terms of where to locate operations and uh, all of these geopolitical factors I think are weighing into investment decisions more now today than they have been at any time that many of these CEOs can remember.
0: Yeah, although one thing that I thought was really notable was on the micro level when CEOs looked at their businesses, their own businesses, they saw the need to hire more people. And you said that uh, in in the survey it showed uh, that U.S. CEOs expect headcount will grow over the next three years with 80% reporting they are investing in recruitment. Uh, this, to me, is fascinating and speaks to this tight labor market that we keep talking about. Does this, in your opinion point to salary increases, which people have been waiting for?
4: You know, that's a complicated question, I think, frankly, Lisa. Um, I think the good news is <clears throat> that, again, mirroring the confidence levels, when we compare the CEOs' responses this year to last year, uh, a little less optimism about employment-level growth over the next three years, but still, I think, a a pretty good degree of confidence on the part of CEOs that they will be hiring uh, and that and at significant levels, over 6% growth in their employee levels. The reason that your question is a little complicated is I think it really gets to what kind of skills are we talking about. There is clearly a shortage and the statistic you cited around 80% actively recruiting. That's true, but they're actively recruiting for very specific skills, technology-based skills, things like that where –
0: um, like coding or is it something is it is it pretty broad within I, the technology space? I
4: think it's broader it gets to ability to analyze data, utilize data and analytics um, uh take advantage of some of the cognitive uh technologies that companies are now deploying in their organization data scientists to help them synthesize and think through all of this and uh
0: so what I'm hearing you saying is almost like a, a split between uh, people with higher education and people not. In other words, people who have uh, have some training with respect to, you know, things that are usually taught in college or later in high school, not necessarily the blue-collar jobs.
4: Although, you know, one of the things that's interesting and, and frankly surprised me in the survey results is when we asked a specific question about Do you believe cognitive technology is going to increase or decrease your hiring over the next three years? It was overwhelmingly an increase, which I think is counterintuitive to what a lot of people are thinking. And and that was across a fairly wide range of job skills, uh, a lot of traditional finance, marketing, sales. And I think what that talks to is companies looking today to see how am I going to deploy some of these disruptive technologies most effectively to benefit my customer. And that's going to take people uh, helping them figure that out and do that. So I think in the near term, this may not be a long-term kind of dynamic, but certainly in the near term, it appears that some of these disruptive technologies are actually um, leading companies to believe they will be
1: increasing headcount. John Viermaier, thank you very much for being with us. Global Chairman KPMG speaking about KPMG's 2017 CEO Outlook Report. It was a survey of 400 U.S. and global chief executives for their views on their top priorities over the next three years. turn our attention now to what's going on with markets, and we have James Paulson. He is a former chief investment strategist and economist at Wells Capital Management. No, he is. You still are. $350 billion, $350 billion, previous under management, based in Minneapolis. Uh, Jim Paulson, you've written that uh, there's a whole lot of consensus opinion, what we might term conventional wisdom, and then you debunk it. I'm wondering if you could just go through some of those topics.
5: Well, yeah, I think it's always sort of important to keep an eye on uh, any kind of thoughts that are really strongly and widely held, because if often they're right, but if they're ever wrong, as you know, you create quite a market change, and so always sort of uh, stay focused in on some of those. Um, overall, I think um, one of them that I find interesting is the idea that's been prevalent throughout this recovery, Kim, that that wage you know wage gains have been so Uh, tepid, um, and that this implies that, boy, labor's not doing very well, and that the consumer must be weak and vulnerable, leaving the the recovery itself in question. And it is true that while nominal wage gains have been very low in this recovery, real wage gains, which are really important, the purchasing power of labor has really done quite well. It's gone up about 1.7% per annum, since the end of the last recovery. And that's been one of the stronger gains in real purchasing power that we've had since the 1960s. So I I think that that explains a lot better to me why the consumer has done fairly well in this recovery. It's been leading the recovery. Uh, The consumer discretionary stocks have led the stock market overall. Consumer confidence is high. It dovetails, I think, with a much better uh, real wage Uh, growth than what recognized.
0: You know, Jim, I'm struck by the complacency in the market uh, paired with this idea, or the perceived complacency paired with this idea expressed in the Bank of America Merrill Lynch uh, survey of fund managers showing that nearly half of fund managers think that there is bubble-like condition, there is a bubble-like condition in tech stocks. And Jim, uh, over your decades of work at Wells Capital Management, uh, which you left Earlier this year, have you ever seen another period of time similar to this one? And which one would you identify?
5: Well, I, I, think, I think there's been some similar, but not quite like this. You know, certainly a concentrated move in one section of the market does occur at uh, different times. I mean, certainly the nifty-fifty of the early 70s, the dot-com move. Other times in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, the, the move in energy uh, stocks, uh, small cap stocks, sometimes in the 60s. I mean, there's there's been concentrated uh, movements like we've had in this, but I, I think this stands out as uh, unique, and I don't remember something being. It's not even so much concentrated to a sector, Lisa, as it is concentrated to just a handful of names uh, that make up a very large portion of the marketplace an outsized portion by just a handful of stocks is something that's kind of unique. So if you do have, I think the overall market is not in that bad of shape from a valuation perspective, but if it's being dominated by, you know, five or six stocks that make up a really sizable portion that are extended, then it can become a market event in a way that it really hasn't uh, in the past. Certainly, When we had the Nifty 50, it was somewhat like that. But a lot of other stocks were also, I think, extended, where today it's really concentrated just among a few. There's not a real precedent to have so much valuation risk concentrated among so few.
1: Can you speak a little bit, Jim, about the the historic levels of valuation for, let's say, the S&P 500?
5: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, another survey that caught my eye this morning – so, was another Bank of America survey that said uh, some record setting proportion of uh, of uh, investors think the market is overvalued by, you know, extensively overvalued today. And I think that's interesting, um, uh, if you will. But what I've seen, one of the most popular long term valuation uh, methodologies is put out by Robert Schiller, the CAPE price earnings multiple, goes back to 1870, I believe. And what I find interesting is that. In the last quarter century, going back to 1992, last 25 years, based on that really popular CAPE multiple, that thing has been above its long-term average like 98% of the time. It's actually been above the 90th percentile valuation in the last 25 years, uh, uh, about half the time. So this has been – it is a highly valued market today, and people perceive it that way. But I'm really starting to question it, because if something's been overvalued excessively for 25 years, at what point do you suggest that this this isn't just a one-off that's going to correct, but maybe we're in a new valuation
0: situation? Jim, I'm struck by how bullish you are, because this is all basically uh, casting some doubts on the pessimism that we're seeing in these surveys and by the increasing amount of cash in people's portfolios.
5: Yeah. It is. I I get the valuation risk. I think there's this is real valuation risk, but it, that won't be realized until probably the next recession, and I don't think that's close. I think it's a ways off. So I think this valuation risk could get more extreme, and I love the fact that we got a record number of people saying that the market's overvalued, that we got record cash holdings on the sidelines uh, out there, that we have this perpetual there's one tagline for this bull, it's that it's forever climbed a perpetual wall of worry that is still there today. I think there's more upside yet, it's in part because we don't have enough people yeah. playing it in this market.
0: Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's always wonderful to hear your insights. Jim Paulson uh, is the former chief investment strategist and economist at Wells Capital Management. He left earlier this year. Uh, Wells Capital Management oversees about $351 billion in Minneapolis, Minnesota.